Hello, Parkview, and good morning. It is a good morning, isn't it? Oh, it feels like a good one. Uh, my name is Thomas Hoke. I am one of your pastors here at Parkview. I spend most of my time working with community groups and equipping classes, that kind of thing. Uh, but this week and next week, I have the privilege of getting to preach God's Word to you. Uh, so I'm excited about it. And I have to say, of all the sermons I have preached, and I don't say this very often, but, um, well, at all, I, I don't know if there's one that I've, I've spent more time praying over and just, just wanting to be clear, praying for me, but mostly just praying for you. Um, and so I just, I really hope this is a time of blessing for you uh, through God's Word. Amos 5 and 6 is a wonderful passage. I hope you've really been blessed by our series through the Minor Prophets, Habakkuk, and now Amos. We've got a few weeks left to go, and uh, God really has something to say to us today. So, yeah. Uh, you know, whenever you love someone, maybe even if you've fallen in love with someone, I'm sure some of you have, <clears throat> uh, you, something happens where you become very interested in what this person enjoys and what this person really dislikes, what they love and what they hate. And you might often find yourself, uh, especially early on, maybe you're in a, in a love relationship or just making a new friend or something like that, where you're asking them, what's your favorite movie? What's your favorite book? What's your favorite kind of food? What's your, you know, what's, what do you love? And on the other hand, sort of wanting to know, what, do you, what can't you stand? You know, dogs or cats? Oh, you love that one, you hate that one. Oh, you, and you just want to know, what do they love? What do they hate? And, the, and, and you, because you want to do what they love and, and avoid what they hate. I remember, you know, just this week, actually, on Thursday night, we're having a community group, and I, we're doing appetizers, and I am making a big bowl of pico de gallo, okay? Salsa, you got it? And, uh, but I know that my lovely wife, Katie, she hates cilantro. Anyone else? I know, it's an epidemic. People not liking cilantro. And so I made a separate bowl just for her, no cilantro. It's what most people would just call tomatoes and onions. Uh, but she, she saw that. I said, hey, I made you a little bowl. She, she, she was overjoyed. And I was overjoyed that she was overjoyed because she saw that I remembered and I knew what she loved and what she hated. She loves Mexican food. She ate cilantro and she saw my actions reflected that. And so if that's true uh, just in human relationships, how much more true is it in our relationship with God? When we read the Bible, we want to know, what does God love? What's, what's his favorite? What's, what does he love when he sees us doing? And what does he loathe? What can't he stand? And of course, then, uh, just like me with the bowl of, of cilantro-free pico de gallo, uh, we want to do, we want to act in accordance with what God loves and, of course, act away from uh, what God hates. It would be so much easier, wouldn't it be, in, in a relationship if, if someone would just write it down for us? Just, would you just give me a list, you know? Uh, just write me a letter, do, you know, show me. Well, actually, in Amos 5 and 6, uh, we have something pretty close to just that. We get to see, and, and today we're going to ask three questions that align with that uh, to get to the heart of this passage and to get to the heart of our most beloved one. That's sort of the audacious claim of the Bible is that we have fallen for the creator of the world. And so if, if we want to know what he loves, what he hates, and therefore how to act appropriately, well then, we'll ask of this passage, what was wrong in Amos's day? What did God hate? What was wrong? What was wrong? How, what did God want? That is, what does God love? We're sort of asking, what does God love? Uh, what did he want them to do about what was wrong? And thirdly, how can we respond faithfully today? What was wrong? What did God want? How can we respond faithfully today on the other side of the cross? But first, 
we just need to pray because we need the Lord to even hear his word. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We can come together as your family, brothers and sisters of one another, to worship the Most High God and that you have given us the the greatest King of all, Jesus. And we pray that we would hear your word rightly today. You would help me to speak clearly and truthfully, uh, to only say what your word says, and that you would come and, and not only transform our minds so that we have more information, but that you would transform us to look more like your son and transform us together as a church to be a city on a hill, to be the salt of the earth that you have called us to be. We pray that you would do all this uh, for your glory. Amen. Okay, so the first of our three questions is what was wrong? What was wrong in Amos's time? What was wrong and what does he get to in Amos 5 and 6? And he actually makes this really clear. We see this threefold repetition of this particular pair of phrases. And those two, well, I'll just show you. In 5, 7, chapter 5, verse 7, if you want to flip there, by the way, it's a little bit obscure. Hopefully you guys can find it. I know you will. In 5, 7, he calls them, he calls his people, God's people, you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Wormwood was this bitter plant that you, you didn't want to eat. In 6.12, he charges them again. He says, you have turned justice into, into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Hear those two words coming in again? And then finally, uh, in 5.24, I'm going back, but in 5.24, he exhorts them um, and he says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He keeps using these, these uh, two words together, justice and righteousness. You'll never find one of them in the passage without the other close by. And, and when the passage is talking about justice, we have a lot of ideas about what justice could mean, but when Amos is talking about justice in this passage, he's primarily talking about the relationships between humans, sort of on the horizontal plane, between one person and another, justice. And what he's saying is, rather than upholding justice, the people were oppressing one another, exploiting the weak, especially uh, the powerless in their midst, to their own gain. Uh, We see this in 5.11 and later, a little later in 12, it says, God's judgment is coming because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him. And he calls them, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Justice, Amos says, and God says, justice, which should be sweet and nourishing to individuals and to a society at large, was instead treated like poison. Get that out of here. Get that out of my mouth. It was treated like a bitter plant. Get Get those out of here. But we see not only has justice gone wrong, remember justice and righteousness, justice and righteousness, justice and righteousness, but righteousness too has been treated like dirt. The word righteousness normally, uh, and here, refers not so much to sort of relationships on the horizontal plane between me and my neighbor, uh, between me and my my fellow person, uh, but vertically between me and God. Righteousness too has, has gone awry. Now, this accusation, the first, you know, to say justice has gone wrong, they might say, well, maybe, yeah. But to say righteousness has gone wrong, I think would have been a real shock for them. You might remember last week when John was preaching in Amos 3, we read uh, this sort of sarcastic comment that Amos makes. 
Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. Publish them. Write it up in a newspaper. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel. It's a sarcastic comment about how while well, they're, they're showing up to church all the time and doing all the religious stuff, but it's totally empty. And God says, not only have you done justice wrong, but you've done righteousness wrong too. And, and the picture that emerges, which is tragic, is this. At a, at a societal level, God's people have drawn a sharp division between their relationship with God vertically and their relationship with one another and especially uh, with the weak and the vulnerable who are easiest to exploit. You know, they came to the sanctuary all the time. They're in the sanctuary. They're up in church, right? They're checking all the boxes. Uh, and you just, you look at this rebuke that God gives to them. Uh, who are these people? Uh, you'd say, these are great people. If you just saw them on Sundays, you'd say, these are wonderful people. Look, they're writing the big checks, right? They're doing just what you said. They knew all the words to every single song, even the new ones, right? We're just saying. Uh, they raised their hands at the right time right? Uh, they volunteered. They went on the retreats. They, I mean, in, if you look at 6.5, it says they, they invented new worship songs. Wow. They even invented new instruments, okay? I haven't invented a single worship song, let alone a new worship instrument, but that's how hot, they were going crazy with this stuff. And they thought that since they were following all of God's religious rules in the sanctuary, that he would look the other way when they cheated each other. This was a society that was upside down. They thought that, and they were wrong. They were wrong. Amos says, you're wrong. God demands integrity between our vertical relationship with him and our horizontal relationships with one another. And I think the first thing we have to say, if we're really saying we love God, we want to know what he loves and, and hate what he hates, and, is this is really wonderful news. It really is wonderful news. You know, God demands integrity. Whatever God demands of us, whatever's in his law, it's there because that's who our God is. And, and God demands integrity from us because he himself is a God of integrity. And when you start to think about it, it is, isn't it such a joy to serve a God where we, just, we know what to expect from him? He, he's not one way on Sunday, another way on Monday. He is completely consistent. He's not moody and capricious and you never know. When I come to you in prayer, are you going to turn me, turn me away or are you going to? No, he's always going to be the same with us. I mean, you've met people who aren't like that, right? You know, they walk in the door for community group or they walk into the door for work and you don't, you don't know which version of them is going to show up. Is it the nice person that sometimes comes? Is it the sort of nasty one that's going to show up? To, I don't know. What we do know from this passage is that God, that is not our God. We know exactly who, who we're coming to every single time. It's also good news because it tells us what God's rule and reign looks like. Uh, the world that God created and intended and the world that God one day will restore perfectly. I don't know about you, but aren't you sick of children going hungry? Aren't you sick of crooked people getting rich at the expense of poor people? Aren't you ready for a world without the small print in the contract? That, without homeless shelters? Without, without scammers calling up our elderly people and trying to steal their retirement from them? Our God is, is ready for that world. 
and he, he's sick of the injustice, and he is, he's good and angry about it. He's, he's warning them, and his warning to them is that their society is so upside down that he is going to come and in judgment turn them right side up. He's, he's saying a great reversal, a great inversion is coming for, your, for, the, for these people. Uh, in 5.11 he says this, You've built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine because the, the invaders are going to come. And just as you have stolen from others in order to get your luxury, they are going to steal from you and you will not have your luxury. It's, it's a total upside down flip. God is going to turn them right side up. And it will be incredibly painful for those who have found themselves in a lack of integrity. And it will be justifying, it will be vindicating for God and for those who have been living right side up. And don't forget, man, you hear some of the things that he's saying and you're going, wow, he must, this must be off in heathen territory. Amos must be, you know, yelling at some really bad people, right? No, this, he's in the church lobby saying these things. And so to answer the first question, which was, you know, what was wrong? Or sort of what does God hate? What was wrong there? The answer is this. God cannot and will not tolerate people who try to have holiness in their vertical relationship with God without seeking holiness in their horizontal relationships with others, and especially uh, those who are easiest to oppress, those who are vulnerable. Righteousness, God says, righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. He says, you will either have both or you will have neither. Uh, Some of you might know uh, that I am a big bike rider. And pretty much every day when I come to work here at Parkview, not today, but I ride my bike. And uh, that means we're a one-car family, uh, which is really fun. A lot of the time we get to spend a lot more time together and all that kind of thing. Uh, But sometimes it has its problems. And a couple years ago, I was actually doing an internship here at Parkview. And so I was traveling back and forth between Chicago and Iowa City. And I had borrowed a car to go back to Chicago for a class. I came back you know, and I had this weird situation where I was borrowing a car, but I needed to take my keys with me. Anyway, so I was going out the door, grab my keys, go. Get back to Iowa City, and I realized I already had my keys. So I hadn't grabbed my keys. I had grabbed Katie's keys, which means Katie had one car, zero keys, and I had two keys, zero car, okay? Uh, Now, the thing about cars and keys I'm just going to state the obvious here. You really need both. You really do. And in fact, to have one without the other makes both of them useless, right? Katie had a car, no key, and therefore she had nothing. I had two keys, no car. You get it. So it is, Amos says, so it is with righteousness and justice. You will either have both of them or you will have neither. And we're going to sort of work into applying this a little bit more specifically in, in the second point when we start to talk about what is God love? What does, he, what does he want this to look like instead of what it did look like? Uh, but I think the first thing we have to say just generally is that God, God desires integrity from us. Real integrity between the vertical and the horizontal. How we treat, how we interact with God and how we interact with one another. He wants holiness in both. And so perhaps the question we should ask ourselves is this. Are you the same person on Monday that you were on Sunday? Do you tell the same jokes? Do you talk to people the same way? Do you talk about the people you disagree with the same way? 
living with integrity means you're the same person no matter where you are, when you are, what time it is, who you're around, no matter what building you're in. Hmm? And maybe, maybe it was harder then. Maybe we can say, you know, it was harder because the sanctuary, they said, the sanctuary is where we go to really serve God, you know, directly and out here. It's a little, well, but no longer. You guys know, this is not the temple. This is not, we call this the sanctuary, not because this is where God lives. Because the temple, you know where the temple is? Here it is. The church is the temple of God's spirit. This is the this is the new temple. Here you are. There's nowhere where you can go and say, well, I can serve God when he's near me, but when I'm away, no. He lives within us. And he, I hope, is pushing us ever so slightly or maybe more toward integrity in all of our lives. So now, there's a good answer to our first question, what was wrong? But that's really only half the problem. Now we need to see what did God want? What did God want? And in the first case, we saw that God sort of used this threefold phrase, you know, um, righteousness and justice, righteousness and justice, righteousness and justice, kind of a tongue twister, um, to sort of make his, his point about what was wrong. But he, he does the same thing, hopefully, to show what should have been, what should have been. He says in 5.4, sorry you're bouncing around so much, but in 5.4, he says, seek me and live. In 5.6, just a couple verses later, he says, seek the Lord and live. You can see he's unpacking. And in 5.14, he uses the same phrase when he says, seek good and not evil that you may live. You can hear this is sort of the same phrase being expanded and, and, and uh, sort of deepened. And so the call of Amos 5 and 6 is for an immediate and obvious repentance, change of life, a, a change of mind that leads to a change in action. In this case, repentance would look like uh, integrity between personal religious practice and public justice. And it's, it's a call to personal and public integrity, to put it simply. But that's pretty general. That's pretty general. Um, helpfully, the passage, though, also gives us some, some specifics to see uh, what did it look like in Amos' time and how can we apply that to ourselves today. So we can see three really clear things that Amos points out. And I made them start with the same letter for each one because I thought that'd be helpful. Okay, so first, they were cocky when they should have been humble. They were crooked when they should have been honest. And they were callous when they should have been heartbroken. I'll say that again. They were cocky and should have been humble. Crooked and they should have been honest. Callous and they should have been heartbroken. First, we see what God wanted was uh, a humble people, and yet they were cocky. Here's what I mean. We see in, in verses 18 through 20, it says, and this is, this is Amos addressing sort of a popular sentiment of the day. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. They wanted the day of the Lord. We'll get to that. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him and went to a house and leans against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? The day of the Lord was, was this day that was prophesied where God would come and he would render judgment. And he would, he would fix everything and he would give everyone their due, vindicating himself and his faithful people. But obviously, it was a fearful day. 
God was coming, uh, even for God's people. It was a fearful day, and it wasn't, it wasn't a day to be cocky about. But Amos is, the people Amos is addressing, they said, oh, judgment is coming? Great, I will get my lawn chair. Let me go get my grill. I'm going to get some bratwurst. And oof, can't wait to watch God. God's just going to take care of all these. Ugh, so excited to see this happen. What? No, they, they were cocky, and they should have been humble. They said, oh, Judgment's coming. I'm praying for you. No. What, what is that? They should have been humble, but they were cocky. Anyone here seen the movie Frozen? I'm sure many of you have. Uh, in the movie Frozen, if you've seen it, uh, there's a wonderful character called Olaf. And Olaf, this is very important, is a snowman. And Olaf is also very excited because he's heard about this thing, this season that's coming, this, this wonderful day that's coming. And it's called Summer. Okay, some of you have. I'm, I'm excited. Okay. And summer. Olaf is so excited about summer that he actually sings this song about how excited he, a snowman, is for summer. Uh, he says, you know, sometimes I like to close my eyes and imagine what it'll be like when summer comes. Bees will buzz, kids will blow dandelion fuzz, and I'll be doing whatever snow does in summer. So excited. He's so excited. He says, a drink in my hand, my, my snow up against the burning sand, probably get, getting really tan in summer. Olaf was hilariously but tragically unprepared for the coming season, for the coming day, and so was Israel. The thought of God's judgment should never puff us up. It, 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 shouldn't, it shouldn't make us rejoice, not quite. It, it should make us examine our hearts, and, and we should be like King David in Psalm 139, who said, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and, and see if there be any grievous way, anything wrong within me and lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me to be right. True integrity, true repentance that produces integrity between the vertical and horizontal elements of our relationships doesn't begin by pointing fingers out there. It begins by pointing fingers right here. Is there anyone in your life that you can't find it in yourself to pray for them? To, to pray that they could avoid the judgment of God? Is, is, there, is there a tiny dark corner of your heart where, where you actually relish the idea they'll get theirs? Even looking forward to it. There is beauty in God's justice and the fact that one day he will restore all things, but there is no beauty in rejoicing in the downfall and judgment of others. And so they were cocky when they should have been humble. But secondly, we see that, the, that God's people were crooked when God wanted them to be honest. Crooked when God wanted them to be honest. We see this in, again, I mentioned this before, but I'll read it again in 5, 11 through 12. It says, Therefore, because you trample on the poor... And you exact taxes of grain from him. And later, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. The gate was where just, it was the courtroom, essentially. You turn aside the needy in the courtroom. Not only were there individual cases of God's people discriminating against the weak, but their sin had become so pervasive and so ingrained into their society uh, that they had become encoded into their civil laws. It says, you, you exact taxes of grain. This, 
It's legal language. It's, it's a legal tax that they've, they've put on that's, that's unjust. It says they turn aside the needy in the, in the court. Say, no, no, no. Don't come here for justice. They didn't need to do their wrongdoing behind closed doors because they had legislated their oppression. What could be done? It's perfectly legal. God says in 5.15 they should amend their ways by establishing justice in the gate, the court. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Joseph. And so, we, we must not stand for oppression among God's people, and we especially must not excuse it because of our religious rituals. Uh, a man arrived at the courthouse in, uh, this was in Washington State, in 2008, and he was there just to pay sort of a simple fee he had to pay. Um, but then a couple days later, he was arrested uh, because the money that he had used to get right with, with the government was actually money that he had stolen in a robbery. It was a marked bill. So he tried to use money that he had stolen in order to get right. Uh, this is it's sort of the image of, you know, you go to someone's house and you say, oh, wonderful, I brought, good news, I brought you a TV. You're going to love it. I know you're going to love this TV, this wonderful gift. I know you're going to love it because I stole it from your house last week. Okay, it's just, it's just this ludicrous picture of trying to get right with God um, by doing wrong. And this is what was happening. And it, it's sort of trying to be right with God without being right with others. And, and, of course, that does mean that we must not stand for oppression among God's people. But we also must be good stewards. And that means as long as we have a voice and a vote, we must also not stand for oppression in our country. And I think for now, this is what's appropriate to say from the pulpit. Christian, you cannot put aside your commitment to Christ when you step into the voting booth. We must be the same thing we are on Sunday as we are on Election Tuesday. Second, Christian, remember that you are a Christian a thousand times before you are a Democrat or Republican. We, our allegiance is to the lamb who was slain. It is not to the donkey. It is not to the elephant. When we find that our party uh, disagrees with Jesus or Jesus disagrees with a party, then we need to side with Jesus, we need to, and we need to be critical of our party. And finally, my prayer, because I think this is an opportunity of great hope for us, is that while our country is marked by deep, deep political divisiveness uh, and, and just strain and just disagreement, my prayer, and I think this is really would be Jesus' prayer, is that the church and maybe in particular community groups where we have trust with one another, that those would be the places where we can have honest conversations about very important topics, very difficult topics, without the temperature in the room just instantly skyrocketing. If we really want to be what Jesus calls us, he calls us the salt of the earth, a preservative uh, that keeps the decay in society from, from progressing. If, if we're going to be really the city on a hill, a city that everyone can look at and see an alternate way of relating to one another, then, then I think we have the great opportunity of setting an example of what it looks like to have healthy, not meaning we just automatically agree about everything, but that we're unified by God's Spirit and we can have these serious and important discussions uh, with civility and unity in the midst of 
chaos. Now, finally, that was, we saw that they were cocky when they should have been humble. They were, they were the second one, callous when they should have been, nope. They were crooked when they should have been honest. And finally, we see that they, they were callous when they should have been heartbroken. We see this in 510 where it says, they, the people he's addressing, they hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. And again in 514, just a few verses down from there, if you look, his command to them is hate evil and love good. God is saying, you know, not only are your religious rituals sort of all wrong because you're doing the horizontal, you're trying to do one without the other, but it starts, and not only am I sick of the way that you're treating the vulnerable around you, but it starts not with your hands, not with your minds, or it starts in your very hearts. God is saying, you, you love all the wrong things and you hate all the right things. What, what, you, what you should do is love the right things and hate the wrong things, right? Hate the things you should hate. It's a problem. Uh, they didn't just need new minds. They didn't just need new education. They didn't just need new religious rules. That wasn't working anyway. What they needed was a heart transplant. And while this is, this is hard news to hear, uh, because... We, ha- we have the same kind of hearts as them. You know, it's, it's easy to villainize the people of Amos 5 and 6 and say, wow, how did they get this so wrong? How is their society so upside down and no one ever said anything about it? How did it end up encoded into their legal status? How did this happen? But our hearts are, are broken just like theirs. And this grim reality also points us to our last question because we have to ask ourselves, on this side of the cross, how can we say, I want to serve God. I want to love God, but I see my heart is is broken. So often, I don't know about you, I I don't find myself loving the things that God loves. I I don't find myself repelled by the things that repel God. I I find myself upside down, just just like them. So let's ask ourselves this last question as, as we look at this passage. How can we respond faithfully today? Because it could be easy to look at Amos 5 and 6 and sort of say, oh, Okay, great. You know, I've heard this one before. The fiery prophet, you know, he's railing against, you know, morality and all those sorts of things. I prefer meek and mild Jesus. Well, uh, the problem with that is that Jesus, in so many ways, was speaking the same message as the prophets of the Old Testament. And in Luke 6, Jesus delivers what's also often called the Sermon on the Plain. And in many ways, it echoes the exact message of Amos 5 and 6 which he spoke 750 years before. See, the message of Amos 5 and 6 is this. First, judgment is coming on God's people because while they claim to worship me truly, they are not worshiping me at all because they have neglected horizontal justice trying to just do vertical. And the problem is as deep as their hearts. It's that they don't love the right things and they don't hate the right things. They've got it all upside down. Therefore, in judgment, I will come and I will fix everything by turning everything upside down, and it's sort of horrible. And in Luke 6, Jesus also proclaims a message of judgment. You've probably heard, you know, often this ends up being sort of a kid's story about the, the man who builds his house on the rock versus the house on the sand. But the message of that, story, of that little parable is judgment is coming. A storm is coming, and you need to decide, how are you going to build your house? Are you going to build it on the foundation of God's word or not? Judgment is coming. 
just, just like Amos said, judgment is coming. Uh, and he also says this. What will this judgment look like? At the beginning, in Luke 6, 20 uh, through 26, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You've probably heard this. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the weeping. And then in 6:24, here's the woes. Here's who's cursed. Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you, you who are full, you who laugh. Those with good reputations. What is this? Those are, that's who's blessed and that's who's cursed. Jesus is proclaiming, just like Amos did, the world is upside down. Things are upside down and it's time to turn it back right side up. Jesus also identifies the source of the problem as the heart. Look, look at 645. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For the abundance of, his, of the heart, his mouth speaks. And in so many ways, uh, they've outlined a very similar thing. But in neither, of, in neither case was the threat of judgment empty. In 722 BC, Amos' prophecy is totally fulfilled when the Babylonians came and just like he said, conquered them militarily and carried them off into exile. Exactly what he said in Amos 5 and 6 came to pass. And Amos le left us this really interesting picture. In, in 521 to 23, God's rejection of Israel's sacrifices looks like this. I will not handle your offerings, he says. Literally, I won't touch them. I'm not going to touch them with my hands. I, I will not look upon them with my eyes. I will not listen with my ears to your songs. I will not smell your sacrifices with my nose. It, it's sort of this anthropomorphic, you know, God as if he had a face. God, it's, it's this picture of God turning his face away from an unworthy sacrifice. And 750 years later, judgment fell again. But this time, the sacrifice was not unworthy. It was perfect. On the cross, Jesus' death was treated as if it were an unworthy sacrifice from a person with an impure heart, an imperfect heart like ours. On the cross, even though he lived a life of perfect integrity between his relationship with God and his relationship with others, Jesus was treated as if he were a sinner because he was trading his broken heart for ours so that today we can share, trade our broken hearts for his perfect one. And, and Parkview, this is our only hope for responding to Amos 5 and 6 rightly and faithfully today. We don't have to look forward to the cross not knowing how God would fix everything. We can look back on the cross and look forward to the day when God does set everything right. See, the challenge of Amos is really a gift to us because as dark as it paints the picture of sin and death in a society that's lost, it's only when we see the darkness of our sin that the light and beauty of Jesus' sacrifice can become sweet and wonderful to our hearts. And I, I pray that is what happens to us today. Ab abide in him. Remain in him. Love him. Trust in him. Trust him to come and change your affections. Trust him to come and, and turn your heart upside down. I, I know that's what I need. Trust him, trust him to go to him and hide in him from the judgment of God, the judgment that fell on Jesus. And look to him, not only then, not only today, if it's even the first time, but look to him every day so that you can be and we can be as a church the kind of people who live with, with integrity and love for one another and for God. So let's pray that God would do this.
Our Father, we confess that, that we are a people who so often do try to do religious activity following the rules without following your heart. And so often when we see people that we can take advantage of, we do. Um, in, even in the smallest ways, sometimes not even outwardly, but even just in our hearts. And that's what we really need, Lord. We need a new heart, and we thank you that you've promised us that you would give us that new heart. We pray that we would look to Jesus, that you would beautify him greatly in our sight, so that when we obey you, we do it because we love you. And when we, we see our affections start to change, and we see our church start to change and our world start to change because you have made us the kind of people that you long for us to be. Help us, Lord, to look more like your son for his glory. Amen.